If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ruby Frankie was known by millions as a very tough mom. That's exactly the way she wanted it. The social media star amassed a huge following of supporters and detractors alike, preaching the values of strict discipline. But you'll learn in a new podcast available exclusively on Wondery Plus how the small empire built by this momfluencer crumbled the moment her 12-year-old son escaped their home and called 911. Wondery and Law and & Crime bring you the new podcast, The Rise and Fall of Ruby Frankie, which explores the allegations of starvation, torture, and emotional abuse leveled against Frankie and her business partner, Jody Hildebrandt. Learn about the family's path to stardom, the depravity investigators uncovered inside the home, and hear in-depth analysis of the ongoing criminal trial. Listen to The Rise and Fall of Ruby Frankie exclusively and ad-free on Wondery+. Plus. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. On behalf of the Democratic Unionist Party, I welcome the publication today of Safeguarding uh, the Union Agreement. It seems that Geoffrey Donaldson has won the battle. The DUP leaders taking the party back to Stormont after securing a new deal with the government. After two years of hard work and negotiation, this is what we can show, real change, delivering progress for everyone in Northern Ireland. So Geoffrey says it represents progress on the Windsor framework and the so-called border in the Irish Sea. If we look at what the protocol did to Northern Ireland, it created that border in the Irish Sea, which meant that goods that were moving from Great Britain to Northern Ireland were subjected to all kinds of restrictions. These proposals remove that border. His opponents say, it's changed nothing. The fact remains that in Northern Ireland there are still EU manned border posts being built which will create a border within our own country and when the Northern Ireland Assembly sits ministers and Assembly members will be expected by law to adhere to and implement laws which are made in Brussels which have no say over. Who's right? Who's wrong? Where does anti-agreement unionism go from here? I'm joined by Belfast Telegraph reporter Liam Tunney and commentator Owen Pauley. Liam, can I start with you? It's a, di- it's a difficult question because we are on a podcast here. What's in the day, Liam? Um, well, the, the command paper has been published by the, the government in keeping with the kind of theme of the title so far. It's called Safeguarding the Union. It follows on from, obviously, the Windsor Framework previously. 
Um, there were the two key pieces of legislation that Jeffrey Donaldson had, had made reference to. One was constitutional, and then the other is to do with the, the market. One of the things that it has said it's done is replaced the green lane. Um, it's committing to replacing that lane, which currently requires a large percentage of goods to be checked with a, a kind of UK internal market system that will actually govern the movement of goods that are to remain within the UK. It said it would ensure there'll be no checks when goods move within that UK internal market system, except for those conducted by UK authorities as part of a kind of risk-assessed or risk-based or intelligent-led approach to tackle any criminality. The papers then adds that this will ensure the smooth flow of goods are moving within the internal market. The other aspect of the trade then is the red lane reduction. Um, it's for transporting goods from GB to NI and on, on into the EU single market. That will remain. But the command paper offers measures aimed at reducing that volume of trade required to use the red tape heavy route, as they'd say it. There is a move then to reduce post-Brexit checks on GB to NA trade. That would represent a bit of a challenge to the, to the Windsor Framework Agreement. And it, it may require Brussels approval. Then there's a, a third aspect to it, which is the, the constitutional aspect, as the, the title of the, the paper obviously safeguarding the union. It's about strengthening Northern Ireland's place in the UK. It says the package of measures contained within it, they reassert and strengthen Northern Ireland's place in the United Kingdom and its internal market. Uh, they say it'll future-proof the constitutional status of Northern Ireland against any future agreements that create EU law alignment for Northern Ireland and that may undermine its place within the internal market. It guarantees a smooth flow of goods from Great Britain to Northern Ireland, uh, trade even, and it guarantees unfettered access, which is always the, the buzzword that's, that we've heard uh, for Northern Ireland goods to the rest of the UK on a permanent basis. Liam, I think I can safely say from a podcasting point of view that if people are really interested in the nitty gritty of this and maybe an examination of this deal, they should go to the Belfast Telegraph website. Strengthening Northern Ireland's place in the UK, has there been any nationalist kickback against that at all? Not not that I have seen. I mean, the, the, from Sinn Féin's point of view, what we've heard over the last few days is that they're kind of facing forward into the into the, the assembly getting up and running and they haven't really made much reference to I suppose the deal itself and the nitty gritty of it. They're they're looking ahead. In fact, Mary Lou obviously used the phrase United Ireland is within touching distance. There's a conversation underway about what ha- happens next, 25 years, 26 years almost on from the Good Friday Agreement. What does Ireland look like in five years' time, in 10 years' time, in a generation's time? The days of partition are numbered. It doesn't work. So it's very clear where her kind of view is targeted at the minute and it's not really at the, the ins and outs of the deal. Sinn Féin will have obviously seen the deal as part of the, the kind of negotiations uh, between the government and the DUP and I mean if they had any major issues with it I'm sure we would have we would have heard of that. Certainly I was struck by what Jamie Bryson said um, on Sky News the other night. He said well someone is going to look foolish uh, in the days ahead. It, it, it is generally thought in journalistic circles that Jeffrey Donaldson has really come out to fight for this deal and he has mounted a very strong defence. I think, you know, even objectively saying we can say that he has, uh, and, in, and in terms of it, a defence of it, measuring up to his seven tests, it is a strong performance. I think we can say that. Uh, we definitely can. I mean, there appear to be some sort of switch has been flicked um, in Jeffrey's performance, his demeanour. And I came really with that speech in the Commons where he, he, he showed a passion and, a, and a, a fire that had really been missing over the last couple of months as he obviously tried to get this deal over the line. I think that, that kind of marked a bit of a sea change in his his appearance, his public appearance anyway. And then with getting the deal over the line within his party last week, you can see he's much more relaxed in himself now. He, he probably feels he's a bit more support than he initially maybe thought. And he, he's pushed on with that and he has given a real robust defence. He, he sat down 
like with BBC's William Crawley yesterday and went through the the deal point by point and defended where he felt it measured up against the test. And he has been very forthright in his defence of it. And as you say, his colleague Gregory Campbell gave a similarly passionate defence of the deal and quite a forthright challenge to his opponents. I think he, he waved about a postage stamp and made reference to uh, what, what have our opponents achieved, you could write it on the back of the stamp. So uh, Jeffrey has been far more to the fore and he's also had party colleagues weighing in behind him. Obviously not all party colleagues, but uh, some of the, the big guns are, are weighing in behind him. Owen, I'll turn to you. Are you happy with this deal? Well, I mean, it's difficult to say as yet because I suppose the problem with it is that we've already had three versions of this deal to kind of absorb and uh, and try to pick apart or uh, analyse with Sir Geoffrey Donaldson's version. And yes, he gave that very punchy interview to um, William Crowley in which he, he really gave it the hard sell. And we've got the government's paper, which is also in many ways a sales job, and it's full of adjectives and superlatives and claims about the policies, what, what it achieves, which makes it, in a sense, very much like the Windsor framework. And as you go through the content, there are you know striking echoes uh, of the Windsor framework in it. So, I mean, that's a difficulty in itself because the Windsor framework was what the DUP were supposedly opposing and trying to move on from. And then, of course, the third version of the deal that we have, but I suppose the most important version in the ultimate analysis is the legal text. And I'm sure we've all been reading voraciously, but uh, whether we've been able to uh, read the 80-page document, compare it to the, the legal bills and sort of uh, give an analysis as to whether it all matches up. I mean, it's almost important to do. I mean, there, there are a number of issues uh, with it uh, already that, that look to be overselling. I mean, that's not to say Sir Jeffrey's strategy in terms of Stormont is wrong or whatever, but I mean, there are, there are some elements that he does appear to be overselling already that it, it's difficult to match up the claims that he makes with the kind of content that we're seeing in the bill or, or whatever. Well, Jim Allister's obviously an avowed opponent of the DUP and of Sir Geoffrey Donaldson. He is also a highly respected barrister. He's described this deal, and it's perhaps not a legal term, as very thin gruel indeed. And he said it as such wouldn't remove one word of the protocol. He said it's made no difference whatsoever. Not one word of the protocol has been altered. And that straightaway means that... Northern Ireland remains wholly within and under the EU's customs code and that means that GB, according to that customs code, continues to be regarded in law as a foreign country. I mean, I do see some sort of fairly obvious issues already. For example, I mean, Sir Geoffrey Donaldson claimed, I suppose his most eye-catching claim was that there would be no Irish Sea border and no checks in the Irish Sea, effectively, for, for goods that were coming from Great Britain into another part of the United Kingdom. But that all rests on the idea that this not-at-risk category that is going to be expanded, that is, that the goods uh, that were previously, by default, uh, regarded as being at risk of entering the European Union, very uh, many more of those goods will be not considered at risk. But 
we need to see really the details of how that's going to happen. I mean, it could happen through the joint committee. It was supposed to happen through the joint committee. And originally we were told that really only very sensitive kind of goods, like, you know, maybe dangerous animals or weapons or whatever would be caught up in that uh, description of at risk. But that previously wasn't what happened at all. And I think similarly, the issue of uh, documentation. Now we're, we're told that uh, rather than needing sort of customs documents, customs forms, which are supposedly very onerous for companies to fill in, what they'll have to provide is is commercial information. But we don't know how the extent of that commercial information, what it will be, what will be required rather, and we don't know how it will how will it be input into uh, into the systems. I mean, already companies, businesses, hauliers have been trying to get their heads around what was happening under the Windsor framework. Is there going to be substantial changes? Is it going to be tweaks? So many questions remain to be answered. But this is the thing, Owen. Um, I mean, I think everyone except for Jim Allister believes there has been progress made. So Jeffrey says he's achieved the DUP's objective as measured against the seven tests. Now, there's a whole range of interpretation, but I would put the point maybe to both of you that in actual fact, Virtually no one will actually read this document, the nitty gritty, the law. It, this will come down to people's emotions and their understanding of the discourse. And perhaps because he is the leader and because he's changed the policy of the DUP, perhaps people will simply fall in line without really getting in, into grips with the detail, even if in fact can be shown that the detail hasn't really changed at all. Yeah, well, I, I think that's a very fair point, and you're probably right. But at the same time, while you know the general public won't be reading it, it is an emotional thing, and this was the case with the Windsor Framework too, as well uh, as this deal. Indeed, it, it, it was probably the case even with the Northern Ireland Protocol. There will be businesses looking through this with a critical eye. They're having, I mean, uh, I've spoken to hauliers who are already, you know, preparing their their point. PowerPoint uh, presentations and and the, the kind of lists of points that they're going to go through. So this isn't some completely abstract thing that doesn't have consequences in the real world, because although we might move on from this particular blockage, these things will come up in the future. And at that point, you know, people will turn around to Sir Geoffrey Donaldson and, and quite rightly say, well, were you completely straight with us or did you oversell what you'd achieved? Liam, we can't confirm exactly. We weren't, some people seem to have access uh, to the DUP's meeting, but the numbers involved on the DUP's officer board and later in the executive, there there are some reports around the numbers. Um, there are. I mean, it's understood that the, the 12 person party officer team came down to a 7-5 split, which is, is not, not particularly convincing, but I mean, it's enough to get it over the line. And it's very clear there are many people within the party who are still opposed to this. I mean, these are the people who are senior members. I mean, Sammy wasn't spoke, albeit he directed his ire towards the UK government, but he spoke against the, the deal in Parliament. Carla Lockhart, EMP, is there among those who appear to remain opposed to the deal. So he, he's facing some opposition there from some big hitters, but he's clearly confident that he has enough support to press on. I mean, he got the vote. He His demeanour since then has been quite confident. And the likes of Gregory Campbell, who is a big, big hitter within the party and within Northern Ireland as a whole, to have someone like him so vehemently fighting your corner is, is a big advantage to him. Um, albeit, he will, he'll never have full support on it. And you have opposition, obviously, from outside, from Jim Allister and the TUV, 
from activists like Jimmy Bryce and I mean that that opposition is all going to come. But I think the opposition that probably would be most hindersome to him would be that from within his own party. But for now, it appears that they're making the best of it, seeing how it goes. And if at some point, as Owen says in the future, that needs to be challenged, they will undoubtedly do so again. And Owen, some person unknown or persons unknown saw fit to, by means unknown, transmit to the loyalist blogger Jimmy Bryson live the goings-on in this DUP meeting. Given the numbers and given that someone was prepared to do that and given that Gregory Campbell has said he does not see a future for that person or persons in politics, he seemed quite animated about this speaking to the BBC. It seems very difficult to me to imagine that this opposition will disappear into the night. But what do you think? I, I think we all know um, that in the modern world of social media and everything else, as soon as something is known by more than two people, it's going to be uh, in the public domain. But I mean, it was quite extraordinary to see the or, or to read the, the scenes as they unfolded on Monday night. And, uh, you know, that it was entertaining knockabout, if nothing else. But I suppose in, in terms of the divisions in the DUP, it strikes me that there's two issues, really. It's the, the kind of big hitters, and you're talking about Sammy Wilson and people like that. Will they just be a bit uh, grumpy and reluctant and, um, you know, not, not too enthusiastic about the whole thing and, and point their fingers at the government? Or will they come out in, in opposition um, to their leader? And it seems at the moment, for the time being, that that's not happening. But then there will be an issue of, selling it to the grassroots and managing the grassroots and making sure that there isn't a kind of an upsurge in unhappiness among uh, membership organisations and constituency organisations and all that kind of thing. And that'll be a different kind of management job for Sir Geoffrey Donaldson to to approach with his team in the, in the coming days. I want to throw out a point to you both. I am making uh, a sort of self-promotion here. Uh, we were making a documentary about the Sunningdale Agreement. And the more work we've been doing on this Sunning Deal Agreement, I just, I'm struck again and again and again by how much history seems to repeat itself. And obviously the Sunning Deal Agreement was brought down. Brian Faulkner had a very slim majority in the UUP for this and eventually it, it, the whole thing fell apart. I, I'm wondering about that. But one of the things Faulkner had to deal with was a very strident John Hume who was very, very pro-United Ireland at the time. The, he hadn't developed the single transferable speech at that stage. And people in the SDLP, like Hugh Logue, uh, talking up the Council of Ireland and stuff. So whilst we have actual legislation, in theory, to strengthen Northern Ireland's place in, in, in the UK, we have the Sinn Féin leader saying that now a United Ireland within touching distance. That's not going to help Sir Geoffrey Donaldson. Um, no, in, in a word, it isn't. Um, I mean, for merely McDonald to come out and say that, I mean, it's a, that it's no secret that's Sinn Féin's position and it's a perfectly legitimate position for them to have. However, at a time when unionism has had to has had so much strife and has had to push through this, and Jeffrey Donaldson has had so much difficulty, it must have been it must have stuck in his throat to see that particular line, where at that point Sinn Féin have they're almost totally ignoring what's going on in the DUP and they've pushed forward with their, their own agenda, which, as I say again, they're perfectly entitled to do. But I think possibly a bit more tact may have been required at that point, given the kind of stresses and the, the tensions that have been going on within unionism over the last number of years. Owen? 
Yeah, Paul, I mean, I, we, we all know that the various versions of Stormont in the past have been divided and uh, sclerotic and not particularly productive, dysfunctional, if you will. And I don't think that this uh, particular version is likely to be any more uh, harmonious. And right from the start, there's going to be not only that constitutional difference, and, and that's going to play out in a very um, public fashion. But I mean, there are going to be differences as well uh, in terms of finances and all that kind of stuff. I mean, we haven't really had Stormont agreeing to a budget since 2016. I think if you go right back uh, through through the years, it's either been the government or um, uh, or the budget hasn't been delivered because it's, it's in draft form and the, the parties haven't agreed to it. So, I mean, that's a, an amazing, uh, a, a massive stumbling block um, before you get very far into devolution at all. And, and there's other there's other issues as well, things about like public sector reform in which there's uh, likely to be very deep uh, divisions too. Well, I think I can safely report that there are not many people out there in the public who believe that Stormont's going to wave a magic wand and solve problems. But yet people do talk about the various problems that we have here and they do hope that some decisions can be made. Liam, who do you think is going to go for what? It has been reported that Evan Putz has emerged as the, the front runner to be speaker. Um according to DUP sources. It's also understood that Emma Little-Pengeli is very likely to become Deputy First Minister, um, with Michelle O'Neill, obviously, of Sinn Féin taking the First Minister's role. Um, Gordon Lyons is reportedly on course for the finance portfolio, and Paul Given has been linked to the, the health ministry. Obviously, justice is different. The justice has to, it requires a cross-community vote. Naomi Long, the previous justice uh, minister, has obviously been tipped for that too, along with Claire Sugden, who performed the role in the previous iteration of the executive before the 2017 collapse. It's Health is probably the one that, it's always the one that people are maybe a little bit reluctant to go for, just given the, the tough decisions and the sheer volume of work and the job that needs done. Um, so it will be interesting to see who grafts that particular nettle and tries to make make the best of it. The reason people are predicting Gordon Lyons for finance, I mean, he knows the brief and he is experienced in that area. Owen, we see that there are text messages, WhatsApp messages regarding loyalist protests, uh, road blockages even planned. We know sometimes these things don't pan out. Often they don't pan out. It takes It's difficult to get protests going, but there have been letters, there have been meetings. You know, there's a phenomenon what we've called on this podcast, new wave loyalism. And one of the things that's always thrown at people in this sort of younger version of loyalism is that, you know, you're not elected. You're not, you're not elected. Do you think that in loyalism, and I'm thinking about people like Moore Holmes, um, Jimmy Bryson and others, do you think that they, that they would have enough support uh, and, and be motivated enough in their opposition to these arrangements to mount a serious electoral challenge to the DUP anywhere? Well, I don't know about an electoral challenge. I mean, they do have a following in the areas that um, loyalism is strong. Um, I think it would be uh, regrettable if you were to see sort of disruption uh, occurring because of this. But at the same time, there has been real anger throughout this uh, protocol process uh, among very many unionists that they're being kind of edged out of important aspects of the UK. And I mean, they do represent that uh, constituency with quite an articulate voice in actual fact, um, even though, you know, they're not uh, 
particularly uh, popular among their opponents and, and maybe they're, they're kind of prone to be ridiculed on social media and that kind of thing. Liam Hohen, thank you very much. This episode of The Bell Tale was produced by myself along with Graham Davidson and Olivia Peden. The clips you heard were from the BBC, UTV and Sky. 